it was the summer of 41, and I was in the second year of my technical school, and I had to have practical work in a factory. Sunday, the 22nd of June, 10 o'clock was a meeting of uh, all the workers. It was a beautiful Sunday morning. The sun was uh, shining, and we come over. And at start the meeting, and a young Jewish communist girl, what I know, gave us a talk. And the talk was on the subject about a British-French uh, imperialism and how the British-French would like to provoke the Soviet Union in a fight against uh, Nazi Germany and that we wouldn't let ourselves. And in the middle of this, we had bombs. We went out and we saw planes bombing Vilna. We put on the radio and we heard Molotov's speech that in the morning the Germans crossed the Soviet-German border and they attacked the Soviet Union. You're listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. I'm Eleanor Risa. Chapter 3, Nazi Invasion. This episode begins in the summer of 1941. You'll hear diary entries by Hermann Kruk, the voices of Abram Zheleznikov, Vera Goldman, William Begel, Sheila Zvani, Mira Verben, Mira Berger, Henny dermashkin Gurko and Samuel Bach. I was in a dacha, which means it was a little house out of town uh, near uh, the river, and we were spending there summer vacations. And uh, I was there, my parents were in town, and my mother's brother came to fetch me, to bring me back to town. And by the time we were in Vilna, there were already aeroplanes flying very low, over the city, bombs were falling, and we were running, running, running. I was on his shoulders. We were running through this uh, street where we used to live, and um, we went directly into the cellar. All the people of the apartments in that building were hiding there. It was quite scary, because the building was really shaking. After um, the bombing was over, we went up to our apartment, and besides a few broken windows, it was not so bad. But a building just nearby ours had a direct hit from a bomb. My father was asked to go there because he knew very well the people that lived in that apartment, and actually, uh, the tragedy was uh, that uh, the daughter of these friends, a girl, I think, she, 14 or 15, was killed. They found her body, but they, they could not find her head. 
the whole thing, of course, was the, all the furniture was uh, upside down. It was terrible. And her parents, who were down in the, in the cellar, permitted her at a certain moment to go up to do something. And this is when it happened. And uh, it was my father who found the head of this girl. He came back, he was shattered. All of a sudden, the reality of the war uh, really exploded. The German tanks looked very much different from the Russian tanks. First of all, they're cleaner. They're shining. They had these red, white, and black flags. The soldiers were clean-shaven. There was a tank company that um, stayed in our backyard. And the first thing that they did was to take a bath and pour eau de cologne on themselves and shave and powder their noses, so to say, and shine their boots. When the Nazis came in, the first tanks who came in, we were excited about it because they were handsome guys. But my mother was telling us that she was in the First World War, and they were Germans too. But these Germans were different than these Germans. And the first week was quiet, nothing was going on, you know, normal. Little by little, the things became more and more difficult for the Jews. The first thing they said when Hitler came, that the Jews not allowed to go in the, on the sidewalk. We had to walk on the road. Jews were not allowed to buy in shops. There were separate lines for bread, for milk, for everything. Jews had to walk outside at restricted times. Jews not allowed to go to the store to shop. Jewish not allowed to go certain hours in the street. We had to wear a yellow star sewn on our clothes. I did quite a number of those yellow stars that I painted on uh, fabric and cut them out and my mother sewn them on on our clothes. My mother and her brother's wife decided to make the Jew signs out of embroidered silk. And they stitched the silk both in front and in the back with yellow silk and beautiful black surroundings. And they put on very elegant summer silk dresses. And they went parading on the streets with a J sign. Both of them were good-looking women striking women, well-dressed women, and within 10 minutes of their venture outside, they were caught by Lithuanian police, uh, put into a police station, and picked up by a German sergeant. And we have not heard from them until 
maybe nine o'clock in the evening. The whole family was extremely nervous. They came in dirty, crying. Uh, they were taken by a German sergeant from that police station and brought into a building that served as barracks for an Air Force outfit and told to take off their underwear and wash all the windows. They used to come in, the Germans, at night and rape young girls. They used to come by five, six o'clock looking for young girls. We used to dress up like old ladies. We used to hide in the cellar. Mine aunt, where she had the house, her cellar was under the dining room table and she had a big carpet. So when we heard noise, we ran to the cellar. They shouldn't find us. One night, they knocked on our door to open them. And we lived on the first floor. And my mother said, jump, get out. And I jumped, and I went out in the bushes. And they, my mother was a brave woman. They walked in and they said, where's your older daughter? And my mother said, this is my two kids. I don't have any children. Oh, yes, you have. And they wrecked the whole house. And they touched my sister, was three years younger than me. And she said, don't touch the kid. If you want to touch, touch me. And then my father was taken to work in a camp uh, not far from town where they were cutting turf. My mother was trying to survive by selling various items that were not really essential for our survival, but they permitted us to get food. The first thing that was sold was my father's tuxedo. There was a peasant who came with a sack of potatoes and my mother gave him my father's tuxedo. Within a few days, they started kidnapping Jews. Jews would go out of the houses and just not come back. Sometimes they would take groups of people to various working assignments, and then they would return them at night. This was a special Lithuanian um, police. In Lithuanian, they, they called Ipatinga. In Yiddish, we called them the Hapas, the people with the catchers. Hapun, as they called them. They used to go to the houses and uh, grab uh, men's. I mean, they told them they take them for work. They should take a towel with soap. They took them away to jail. My father was 41 years old, and they took him away. And they took him to the jail. And Somebody told us that they are taking out the men to work. 
My brother was among them. They took him. They came in. The four of us were in the room. They said, to, uh, he is going with us. I went with my mother to see my brother off. I took with me one of my dresses. And I told my brother, listen, Mula, we don't know what they're going to do. Go into the bathroom. There was a, a public bathroom. Put on my dress and come home with me. I talked to him Hebrew. I said, take my dress, go into the bathroom, put on my dress and come with me home. And he refused. My mother was there too, and he didn't want to go. Then they put them and they arranged them in lines, and they took them to Lukishki to the prison, the city prison. And my mother went along on the sidewalk, and uh, she waited near the gate, and then she saw him once more taken out, and he looked terrible because he was beaten. July 1st. I have now learned that many of those who were snatched for labor were sent to Lokishki jail. According to a rumor, that was to be the gathering place from which they were to be sent to work. Many women gather in front of the prison. On July 4th, 1941, an automobile arrived on Zhidovska Street in front of the synagogue yard, and two Germans emerged with rifles on their shoulders. They went into the synagogue yard and asked for the chief rabbi of Vilna. The municipal sexton, Chaime or Gordon, a big, tall Jew with a white beard, was brought to them. Asked if he was the Vilna rabbi, Gordon answered no. He explained that the first rabbi, Isaac Rubinstein, was in America, and the second rabbi, Chaim Ozergrodzinski, died. The Germans couldn't understand how Vilna could be without a chief rabbi, and they ordered him, from now on, you're the rabbi. And they also announced, we order you to set up a Jewish representative body today and present it to us tomorrow. As they had done in other cities, the Germans ordered the Jewish community to create a council, or Judenrat, that would allegedly represent the Jewish community. Jewish leaders convened an emergency meeting to select representatives. <laughs> My father received an invitation to a meeting of the local Jewish community to elect a leadership for the Jewish committee for the city. He got dressed in the morning and went to the end of the street, five houses away. That's where they snatched him. It was the Chapunis. A Gentile acquaintance saw it happen, and he ran to our apartment and told us that he saw my father being taken. My mother gave me money, and I ran to the Gestapo's main building. It was on the other side of town. I was so nervous and angry that I ran near the marketplace. I went to the market and bought some strawberries and kept running and eating all the way. When I arrived at the Gestapo, I told the guard that I had to check something, and he let me in. I entered and went to the officer and told him the whole story. He told me, I know, but I promise you, by the time you're back home, your father will be back as well. We never saw my father again. July 10th. The whole city is depressed about the men who have disappeared. Groups of snatchers wander around the streets and courtyards, 
snatch men wherever they can, and drag them off. The excuse is that they are taken for work, but seldom does anybody come back. Sometimes, Germans themselves come for workers and take them to their work sites. Who are the snatchers? Nobody knows what their purpose is, and it's hard to figure it out. The most important thing was to have a place where to hide, which was in Yiddish is called the Melina. Uh, my father organized to have a part of our cellar uh, separated by a wall from the rest of the cellar. Uh, so that if anyone walked in, they would run into a wall that separated the hiding place. The entrance to the place was through a fake uh, radiator and a uh, uh, windowsill. And we used to go down there and then put the windowsill in place. And it was very difficult to discover. July 12th, guarding my own bones. Like all those who want to save themselves, we decided to get a molina. It is a system introduced into hundreds of Jewish houses where there are men. Can we hold out like this for long? Our family, they made a place, like in a hall to the house, and there they are hiding there. So I was standing on the stairs and watched when we saw somebody came, they went into this place. My father, my brother, and was like, you know, in the darkness, and put some things, and they couldn't see them. They came to the house, they look in the, in the closet, they look all over, we said, no more men. All men are already taken. On the corner of Nehemia and Glazer Streets, a shot was heard. They say a German was wounded. Soon there was a commotion and somebody pointed to a Jew from a house on that corner of Glazer and Vielka Streets as the one who must have shot the German. People soon appeared there. The Jew was beaten horribly. Everything was thrown out of his house and a pogrom against Jewish property spread over Glazer and Eudoka Streets. This did not finish the game. At night, they started driving the tenants out of their apartments. One night, we see a lot of people through our window. We see a whole lines with people screaming in the middle of the night, some naked, some had something, and they was carried them. So what happened? They made like a provocation, the German. They wrote down that that's a Jew killed a German and they took from the Jewish quartal everybody out from the beds in the middle of the night, and they chased them out like uh, cows, like with the machine guns, the Lithiana and the, and the Joyman, and they pushed them to the uh, jail. So far, it is hard to determine the extent of the destruction. It is estimated that about 5,000 Jews were driven out, including old people, and children. My aunt was there, my mother's sister, the, the brother-in-law, the children, everybody they chased. We didn't know what was happening. September 4th, 
the first messages from Ponar. Some Polish farmers start telling us stories that Jews are tithing to Ponari and that there is, they had shootings. We couldn't believe this. We have been thinking that they want to provoke us, they want to denigrate us, to frighten us. This existence of the place called Ponari, it was near Vilna, to me it was a beautiful place, a beautiful wood, where there was the dacha of my aunt. And I remember that place very well from, from the years before when we used to go there in the summer. Ponar was built on the basis of uh, six, I think, very large cavities that the Russians have dug to, uh, for uh, large uh, gasoline dumps tanks, and they never built those tanks. Big, deep holes uh, with, all the, uh, with all the earth around it. A rumor came to the Judenrat that people were shot in Ponar. The Judenrat didn't want to hear anything and considered it an unfounded rumor. The Jewish people didn't believe this could happen, but when they, they you know, after a while, the Jewish you know, very smarter, we taught ourselves, they take children, they take uh, handicapped, they take people like this, do they have to have them for work? You know, we got suspicious, that is not right. Hermann Crook went to the Jewish hospital to meet several people who had come in with injuries. They all told similar stories. From Lukishki prison, they were taken to the forest in Ponar. They were lined up at the edge of pits that were already filled with thousands of bodies and shot. A few people, including some children, did not die. They crawled out of the pits and made their way back to Vilna. The hand trembles as I write these words, and the ink is bloody. Is it possible that all those taken out of here have been murdered, shot in Ponar? The news came, you know, was spread, but uh, we weren't sure. It was like a, you know, we weren't sure yes or no. And it, it was very hard to go on because you didn't know with the Germans. You never know, knew what they had in mind to do. And uh, it was very hard to live in, in, in those conditions. A lot of Jews were being deported all the time. A lot of Jews went to work and never returned. So we, we knew, we thought that maybe they were sent away to a, a camp somewhere because we were trying to, to make ourselves, our lives easier by not thinking that they're being killed, but they were killed.
The Nazis killed approximately 33,000 Jews in Vilna in the summer and fall of 1941. In this episode, you heard from Abram Zheleznikov, Samuel Bach, Vera Goldman, William Begel, Sheila Zvani, Mira Berger, Henny Dermashkin Gurko, and Mira Verbin, whose Hebrew testimony is voiced by Rachel Botchen. You also heard diary entries of Hermann Crook, read by John Cariani. Next up, Chapter 4 The Ghetto. This special series about Jewish life in Vilna is written and produced by Nahani Raus and Eric Marcus. Stephen Naren is the executive producer. Our composer is Liova Zerbin. Our theme music is an arrangement of Vilna Vilna, the 1935 song by A.L. Wolfson and Alexander Olshinetsky. The cellist is Clara Lee Raus. Our audio mixer is Anne Pope. This podcast is a collaboration between the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University and YIVO, the Institute for Jewish Research. I'm Eleanor Risa. You've been listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. <laughs>